Will you please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2. And we want everybody to be able to look along with us. So these guys have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need one, get their attention and they'll get one to you. Mark that Luke chapter 2. This week we've celebrated the amazing story of the miraculous conception and birth of Jesus while his mother Mary was yet a virgin. We've been reminded of the place of his birth, the journey that Joseph and Mary took to get to Bethlehem, arriving just in time because on the night she arrived, she gave birth. But because there was no room for them in the inn, the hard-hearted innkeeper turned away a young pregnant woman, obviously ready to give birth, in midwinter, And so the family was forced to spend that night, of all nights, in an animal shelter. Now this narrative originates in the passage that I've asked you to turn to in Luke chapter 2, where we read in verse 1, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now, if you look carefully, and you do have to look carefully, at what the Bible says about that first Christmas, and you compare it to the brief synopsis that I gave just a bit ago, you see some differences that I'll lay out in a bit. But for now, where did those differences originate? Well, according to Middle East scholar Kenneth Bailey, whose book Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes provided much of what I'll be saying this morning, he says this, the source of this misinterpretation stems from approximately 200 years after the birth of Jesus, when an anonymous Christian wrote an expanded account of the birth of Jesus that has survived and is called the Proto-Evangelium of James. Now, James had nothing to do with it. The author was not a Jew and did not understand Palestinian geography or Jewish tradition. In that period, many wrote books claiming famous people as the authors. The scholars date this particular, quote, novel to around the year A.D. 200, and it's full of imaginative details. Jerome, the famous Latin scholar, attacked it, as did many of the popes. It was composed in Greek, but it was translated into Latin, Syriac, Armenian, Georgian, Ethiopic, Coptic, and Old Slavonic. The author had clearly read the gospel stories, but he or she was unfamiliar with the geography of the Holy Land. In the novel, for example, the author describes the road between Jerusalem and Bethlehem as a desert. It's not a desert, but rather rich farmland. In the novel, as they approach Bethlehem, Mary says to Joseph, Joseph, take me down from the donkey, for the child within me presses me to come forth. This novel is the earliest known reference to the notion 
that Jesus was born the night that Mary and Joseph arrived in or near Bethlehem. The average Christian who's never heard of this book is nonetheless unconsciously influenced by it. The novel is a fanciful expansion of the gospel account, but it's not the gospel story itself. And according to an article in the Bible and Spade magazine, that's the communication organ of the organization Associates for Biblical Research, the story comes to us through a long church tradition. Most modern versions of that story follow a familiar pattern. The Holy Family arrives late in the night. The local inn has its no vacancy sign clearly displayed. The tired couple seeks alternatives and finds none. With no other option, wearied from their journey and desperate for any shelter because of the imminent delivery, they spend the night in a stable where the child is born. But the cornerstone of this popular pageantry is flatly denied in the text of the Gospel of Luke. Popular tradition affirms that the child was born the night the family arrived. But in Luke chapter 2 and verse 4, we're told that Mary and Joseph, quote, went up to Bethlehem. The verse assumes their arrival. Then in verse 6, we are told, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. So the text affirms a time lapse between the arrival and the birth. The time came for the baby to be born while they were in Bethlehem. We can easily assume a few weeks have passed, perhaps even a month or more. And thus the birth took place in shelter found by Joseph during those weeks. Was Joseph, the article asks, so totally incompetent that he could provide nothing by way of adequate housing after a significant number of days of searching? Was Bethlehem so hard-hearted that after days and days of intense negotiation, a man with a pregnant wife was turned out by everyone? Surely not. How then is the text to be understood? And to be specific, where was that manger? And what was the inn? Now, I suppose I should say that I'm not a Christmas curmudgeon. That's somebody who just scoffs at what we celebrate and how we celebrate it because it's mostly cultural. I, like most, if not all of you, very much enjoy the cultural adaptations that we have. And though they're not, they are often extra biblical, they are most often not unbiblical. So set your mind at ease. We don't have to take this week back. <laughs> And re-celebrate this, this coming week as, as kind of a do-over. But let's do ask the Lord to help us as we look at the biblical account of Jesus' birth and its significance for us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for what we've been able to focus on this past week. And I trust your people, even with all the cultural adaptations, have focused on the truth of God come to earth. God doing this unbelievable, mind-blowing thing. And doing so on our behalf. We are the glad and undeserving beneficiaries of the God-man having come to live and to die for us. And so help us, Lord, to appreciate that anew as we look at the account that you have given us of that most marvelous event. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, I call your attention to the back of your program. At the very back of the program you should have received on the way in, there's an outline. It's the outline of our message. And the first point of three that I have for you there is this, that 
In Luke chapter 2, we see that the Savior came in humility. The Savior came in humility. And that humility is shown in a few ways. One of those is that he came to humble surroundings. The Savior came in humility, and he came in humble surroundings. Now, in answering those questions I posed earlier, where was the manger and what was the inn? Kenneth Bailey again says this, It's evident that the story of the birth of Jesus in Luke is authentic to geography and the history of the Holy Land. The text records that Mary and Joseph, quote, went up from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And that's because Bethlehem is built on a ridge which is considerably higher than Nazareth. And that's why it says they went up. And second, the title, Town of David, in verse 4, was probably a local name to which Luke adds the proper name of Bethlehem for the benefit of non-local readers. And thirdly, the text informs the reader that Joseph was, quote, of the house and line of David. In the Middle East, the house of so-and-so means the family of so-and-so. But non-Jewish readers of this account could have visualized a building when they read the house of David. So Luke probably added the term line, the line of David, to be sure his readers understood. And fourth, Luke mentions in verse 7 that the child was wrapped with cloths. This was an ancient custom referred to elsewhere in the Bible, as we're going to see a bit later. And it's still practiced among village people in Syria and Palestine. So when the passage tells us of a manger, we can be sure that it's located where mangers were and are in the Middle East. And it was not uncommon for a home in Palestine to have a place for animals. Now, get this, inside the house. A place for animals inside the house. In fact, you go all the way back to the first part of your Bible in the Old Testament, and you'll see this alluded to. In 1 Samuel uh, chapter 28, we're told of a woman who had a fattened calf. Notice where? In the house. And Bailey has actually provided in his book some uh, just simple diagrams of how a simple Palestinian home would look in the time of Jesus. And most of them had these two compartments. One was the family living area, as you see. And then you had some steps. These steps would, would go down. And then there was the main door into which one would come into the house, go to the right to the family living area, or straight ahead is where the animals would go. And that's the enclosed stable area. And that would just be blocked off by either some wood or just because it was lower down. And then just on the other side of that wood or a little bit uh, raised would be these mangers, sometimes just holes in the, in the ground where then water could be uh, received by one of the animals. So the main room was a family room where the entire family cooked and ate and slept and lived. And the end of the room next to the door was either a few feet lower than the rest of the floor. It was blocked or blocked off by heavy timbers. And each night into that designated area, the family cow, donkey, and a few sheep would be driven. Now, the farmer farmer wants the animals in the house each night because they provide heat in winter and they're safe from theft. Every morning, those same animals were taken out and tied up in the courtyard of the house. The animal stall would then be cleaned for the day. And such simple homes can be traced all the way back to the time of David 
and up to the middle of the 12th century. Now, those circles represent the mangers, as I said, dug out on the lower end of the living room. The family living room has a slight slope in the direction of the animal stall that aids in sweeping and washing. Dirt and water naturally move downhill into the space for the animals and can be swept out the door. If the family cow is hungry at night, she can stand up and eat from the mangers cut out of the floor of the living room. Mangers for sheep can be of wood and placed on the floor of the lower level in the, in the stall area. So if Mary and Joseph were taken into a private home, and at birth, Jesus was placed in a manger in that home, then where did the idea of an inn come from? Most English translations of Luke chapter 2 and verse 7 state that after the child was born, he was laid in a manger, quote, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, the passage that I read earlier, Luke chapter 2, including that verse, is from the New International Version, 2011. And they've done a bit better. As verse 7 says, as you look again in verse 7, it doesn't mention an inn, but says, quote, there was no guest room available for them. The reason Jesus was in a manger is because they would have normally been given the guest room of the house, but the guest room was occupied. The reason that, and I'll talk about this guest room in a minute, but the reason the NIV omits now in, it used to have the word in in there prior to the 2011 version. But it's because the Greek word for in, and there is a Greek word, your New Testament was written in Greek, there is a Greek word for in, but that's not the word that's used in Luke chapter 2 and verse 7. It's used in other places in your New Testament, but not in Luke chapter 2. One place where it is used is in the story of the Good Samaritan. You all remember that story. And a man has been beaten and robbed, and the Samaritan comes by and sees him and helps him. And here's what Jesus tells us in that parable. The good Samaritan bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. Now, so there is such a thing as an inn, but that's a different word than what's used in Luke chapter two and verse seven. The word used in Luke two is a different word, katalama, which means a guest room. The guest room was an attachment to that normal two-room house that we saw a bit ago. And it would be attached either to the end of the house or on the top of the family room. And it was reserved exclusively for guests. And we have an example of this at the end of the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 2, we have this guest room referred to. And at the end of the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 22 where Jesus, on the night before he dies, tells his first followers, the disciples, to go and secure a place for us to meet. And you all remember where they met. They met in the the upper room. That upper room was a guest room in one of these Palestinian houses. Jesus told them this. He said, say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room? And that's the word we have back in Luke chapter 2 and verse 7, a guest room. Where is the guest room where I meet, eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. Not only do we have this idea of a guest room that's part of 
the otherwise simple Palestinian home in the New Testament and in the Gospel of Luke, but going way back to the first part of your Bible. You may remember the story about the prophet Elijah. And Elijah came to the home of a, a widow who provided a place for him to stay. And we sometimes call that a prophet's chamber. But here's what the Bible says, that an upper room is where Elijah was staying. So this idea of having a guest room in the home where guests could stay was part of Middle Eastern culture going a long way back. So Bailey has another diagram. And that other diagram shows, yes, the stable area and the mangers and the family living room. But then in this one on the end, you have the guest room. And so when Joseph sought to make arrangements for himself and his pregnant wife, the guest room was occupied. And that's why they were in the family living room. And that is why Jesus was placed in one of the mangers. So indeed, Jesus came in humility. He was born, even with all of that, in humble surroundings, in the animal area of a private home because the guest room was occupied. He was born in humble surroundings, but I say in your outline as well, he was born to humble people. Humble surroundings and humble people. The first to hear of the Savior's arrival are shepherds. And verse 8 says this, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now, shepherds in first century Palestine were poor, and rabbinic traditions label them as unclean. Flocks of sheep would eat private property, and so that appears to be one of the reasons shepherds came to be looked down upon. Five lists of proscribed trades are recorded in rabbinic literature, and shepherds appear in three of the five. The shepherds heard, and what we just read says they were afraid, they were terrified. Now, initially, they were probably frightened by the sight of the angels, but later they're asked by the angel to visit the child. Now, think about it from their point of view. If this child is really the Messiah, the parents are going to reject these shepherds if they try to visit him. How could shepherds be convinced to expect a welcome when they show up? At the king's birth. And these angels anticipated that anxiety. And they told the shepherds they would find the baby wrapped. Which is what peasants like shepherds did with their newborn children. And further, that he would be lying in a manger. That is, they would find the Messiah child in an ordinary peasant home like theirs. He's not in a governor's mansion or a wealthy merchant's guest room. But in a simple home like theirs. And this is really good news for them. Perhaps, after all now, they would not be told when they arrive at that home, get out of here, you unclean shepherds. This was their sign, a sign for lowly shepherds. And this idea of babies wrapped in cloths, again, goes back a long way, back to the first part of your Bible. 
In speaking of the city of Jerusalem and the fact that when Jerusalem was besieged that no one was there to help them, here's what the Bible says about that. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths, which is what normally happened with babies. So the Savior came in humility. And indeed, he came to humble surroundings and he came to humble people. But he really came, I say secondly in your outline, he really came to everyone. The Savior came, yes, in humility and to humble people, but the Savior came to everyone. The Savior was born for the likes of the shepherds, the poor, the lowly, the rejected. But he also came for the rich and the wise who would later appear with gold and frankincense and myrrh. And so I ask you to turn a few pages back in your Bible from Luke 2 to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. And there we're going to see that Jesus came to a variety of people. Matthew 1 tells us he came to men and women. In Matthew chapter 1, you have the genealogy of Jesus. And so there you have this portion where it's very easy for you, you know, in a few days when you have your New Year's resolution and you say, I'm going to read through the Bible and I'm going to start with the New Testament and you start with this. And you go, how did I get into this? And -and so-and-so is the father of so-and-so is the father. And if you're reading in a King James, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. But it's actually quite important as it demonstrates that he, he came to everyone, including, as I say in your outline, he came to men and women. Because in this list of 40 men are listed as well four women. Four women. And I'd like to highlight quickly the four women that are listed here. Verse 3 there's a woman named Tamar. And you first read about Tamar back in the first part of your Bible in Genesis chapter 38. And in Genesis chapter 38, there's a very sordid account of how this woman, Tamar, entered into an incestuous relationship with her father-in-law. And she had twins. And the names of those twins are given in, given in verse 3. Of Matthew chapter 1, Perez and Zerah. So here you've got this sinful woman listed in the line of the Messiah, Tamar. You have a second woman in verse 5, Rahab. And many of you will remember Rahab. Rahab is the woman of the city of Jericho back in the book of Joshua. And when the Israelites went to Jericho to spy it out, she Uh, protected the spies because she believed in the Lord God of Israel. In fact, Joshua chapter 2 says this. She says, the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. So somehow this woman Rahab had become a believer in the true and living God. And she's listed in the line of Jesus. And then you have a third woman, Ruth, also in verse 5. And many of you know the story of Ruth in the book of Ruth, in the first part of your Bible. Just very short, four chapters, a a beautiful story of how Ruth, a woman from a, a town named called Moab. And Moab was a place that 
Israelites were not to fraternize with and not go to. But because of a famine in Israel, a man named Elimelech took his family to get food to Moab. And there his sons married Moabite women. One of those was Ruth. Those sons died, as did the father Elimelech. And Ruth was left with her mother-in-law, Naomi, to fend for themselves. In those days, there was no social security system. Women depended completely on the men. If the men are gone, you're in big trouble. They decided that they would go back to... Bethlehem, from where they had come. And it's in Bethlehem that Ruth meets and marries a man named Boaz. And as a result of this, Ruth becomes the great-grandmother of King David. And it's because of that that Bethlehem is called the town of David, the city of David. And it's because of that that that's the place that Joseph went to because of the census decreed by Caesar Augustus. And Ruth, this Moabite woman, apparently became a believer as well. Ruth chapter 1 says this, Your people, she says to Naomi, will be my people. And your God will be my God. And then there's a fourth woman in this genealogy, in verse 6. Verse 6 alludes to a woman named Bathsheba, but doesn't give her name. It simply says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, you all remember that. You remember that King David committed great sin, the sin of adultery with this woman named Bathsheba. The first part of the Bible tells us her name. And she became pregnant and had a child, but that child died. They had a second child, and this child was King Solomon. Bathsheba was the, the, the mother of Solomon. So why does Matthew list these four women in Jesus' ancestry? Well, a number of reasons can be suggested. He includes men and women, and this is major, because Jesus included women into his band of first followers, and women had a prominent place in Jesus' ministry. In fact, Luke 8 tells us this, the twelve were with Jesus and also some women. And then it names some women, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, and many others. And Jesus' teachings are often geared for both men and women listeners. Matthew may have included women in his genealogy as a sign of how the coming church will be comprised. Where the Bible tells us there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So Jesus came to everyone. He came to men and women. But I say in your outline as well, he came to Jews and Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles. Kenneth Bailey says, if Matthew wanted to include Jews and Gentiles in his genealogy, how would he do that? Because all of the males in the family tree were Jews. So the only way to get some Gentiles in here to show that this Savior has come for both Jews and Gentiles is to include some women. And that looks forward to the very last chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Here we're in Matthew chapter 1, but in Matthew 28, in the last two verses, you remember Jesus' famous final words to his first followers. That you are going to make disciples. You are to make disciples of how many nations? All nations. So at the very beginning now, Gentiles are included, but the only way to do that was to include some Gentile women. Ruth and Rahab were Gentiles. 
Tamar was probably a Gentile. And Bathsheba was originally married to a Gentile, Uriah. That same verse that I quoted just a bit ago that says there is neither male nor female, it says there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So Jesus came to men and women. He came to Jews and Gentiles. And then I say in your outline as well, he came to saints and sinners. Saints and sinners. Now, when I say saints, I don't mean the whole elaborate beatification thing that the Roman church goes through and somebody's declared a saint. Different. I don't mean that. What I mean here, though, is people who were born into moral a moral background and pursued a moral life. They're still sinners, but they pursued a moral life. And so that's what I mean by a saint, a good person, relatively speaking. And then sinners, as we know, Jesus came and he spent time with publicans, tax collectors, and sinners. But one of those saints, one of those people who was moral was Joseph. And verse 18 of Matthew 1 says this. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. All right. So, you're Joseph. You're engaged. Your fiancé is pregnant. You've not had sexual relations with her. You're obviously troubled. And here's what's supposed to happen if someone who is betrothed, someone who is engaged, has sexual relations. Here's what the law said in Deuteronomy. If a man meets a woman pledged to be married and he sleeps with her, you shall take both of them to the gate of that town and stone them to death. That's why our passage in Matthew chapter 1 says Joseph was faithful to the law. He knew the law. Until the angel informs him otherwise, she's to be killed. And yet he obviously doesn't want that to happen and to expose her to public disgrace. Here's a man who is a good man, relatively speaking. He knows the law. He's vexed by what the law requires. And yet he also understands what James wrote later in James chapter 2. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And so he takes Mary to Bethlehem with him on this journey. Now, normally the man would take care of all these affairs. And he would not take his pregnant wife with him. So why did Joseph take Mary with him to Bethlehem for this registration, the census? The easiest explanation that is that he was unsure what might happen to her if he left her in Nazareth. Nazareth without him there to protect her. And so we should see as we read this, Joseph is one of the heroes of the story, without whose mercy and courage, now hear this, from a human standpoint, there would have been no Christmas story to tell. Because Mary would have been killed. The Savior came in humility. He came to everybody, men and women, Jews and Gentiles, Saints and sinners. And then thirdly, I say in your outline, the Savior came to save. The Savior came to save. 
Look at verse 20 of chapter 1 of Matthew. After Joseph had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. Here's why. Because he will save his people from their sins. The human name given to our Lord at his birth, Jesus, means literally Yahweh, God, saves. And the reason you're to give him that name then is because that is what he has come to do. He has come to save, to rescue, to deliver his people from their sins. Now, this came as bad news to many of the Jews. Here's why. Because in Palestine, they were oppressed by the Romans. And they were convinced that when the Messiah comes, he's going to take care of the people who are oppressing us. There are sinners in Palestine, and they're all Romans. And now to hear (laughs) that he's come to save his people from their sins, bad news for many of them. It's one of the reasons, one of the main reasons, that Jesus did not have the reception that you would expect he would have from his own people. You remember he made a habit of telling them what sinners they were. And that they needed salvation just like the Gentile dogs as they considered them. On one occasion, we see Jesus doing this in Luke chapter 13. And some people approached him and they thought they could stump him with this question. Here's what it says. There were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Now, Pilate, you remember him. He's the guy presiding over the trial of Jesus later at his crucifixion. But some people come to Jesus and they say, hey, this Pilate, this Roman Gentile dog has killed some of our people while they were worshiping. What do you have to say about that, Messiah? And here's what now before we look. What do you think Jesus is going to say? Oh, excuse me. My father's busy with other stuff. He's dealing with a hurricane in another part of the world. He didn't know that happened. He would have loved to have done something about it if he could. Here's what Jesus says. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Jesus missed the class on how to win friends and influence people. What he's saying is, you could have easily and should have easily been there. And then Jesus goes on in this account in Luke chapter 13. They're the ones who come with the question about these Galileans and Pilate killing them while they're worshiping. But Jesus says that, and then he goes on and says, well, I'll do you another. How about those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them? Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. The Savior came to save. He came to everyone. Hear this, friends. But he came to make that salvation available to everyone because everyone needs it. Everyone requires it. There is no exception. None. Nada. And I said in the very first point that he came in humility. And I mentioned the humble surroundings and the humble people. But really, 
the apex of his humility is seen in the fact that in Jesus' coming, God became man. God humbled himself to become man, taking the form of a servant. And that's why Philippians chapter 2 tells us famously, Christ Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. But then it goes on, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. The Savior came to rescue, to save. And He rescues, He saves, He delivers by His death on our behalf on the cross. And as you celebrate and as we celebrate Christmas, we must always celebrate the manger with an eye toward the cross. Because the manger was for the purpose of the cross. Now, there are people in this room, we're done, you'll be glad to know. But there are people in this room who have never come to the Savior, who have never been rescued, who have never been saved. And as you come to this place to celebrate Christmas, you need to understand that the one we celebrate came to save his people from their sins. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the Bible tells us as well that God demonstrates his love toward us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The question for you, for me on this Christmas then, is do you see Jesus as the Savior, the one who saves, delivers, rescues from our sins, the penalty of our sins, the power of our sins, and one day the presence of our sins? Do you see him that way, and will you receive him as your Savior? We're going to pray in just a moment. And when we do, those of you who have been rescued, who have been saved, who have been delivered, let's thank God that he came in humility, that he came to everyone, but that he came to save and that he saved us. And for those of you that have never come, when we bow our heads, you bow your head and your heart to God. And from your heart, you say to him in your own words, I recognize that I'm one of those sinners that needs to be rescued. That Jesus died to pay the penalty for my sin. And then say to God, I'm going to follow you with my life. Repent of your sin. I give my life to you. I'm going to go your way, not my way. You receive Jesus Christ into your life. And he promises to rescue, save, deliver you. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you again for this blessed week. And especially for this blessed hour to focus our attention on the true meaning of Christmas, the coming of God to earth for us. Thank you that Jesus saves. Thank you that he saved me. Thank you that he has saved so many in this room. And we thank you, Lord, confident that you are saving some now by your power, touching the hearts of those who did not know you in a personal relationship with you, but are now drawing them to yourself. Lord, we will praise you as we have praised you this week for the wisdom, the marvel that ordained the coming of God as man in the incarnation, becoming flesh. 
We praise you for that. And then we praise you for what that accomplished. So that as man, you could be our substitute and live the life that we should have lived and died the death that we deserve. And we will praise you for those you save now and rescue now today. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, some of you are scared to death that I forgot to give you the take-home truth at the bottom of your outline. So here's what it says. God offers salvation to all types of people in all types of circumstances. All types of people in all types of circumstances. Now, just before we're dismissed with our closing song, I just want to highlight a couple of things that are, uh, or one thing in particular that's in your program. And that is we have some new series that we're going to be starting in the next few weeks. Next Sunday at 9.30, so we will have both services back to our regular schedule next week. Next Sunday at 9.30, we will start a series called Life in the Father's House. And I want to take a few weeks at the beginning of the new year to talk about what the Bible says about the church. And what the Bible says about our relationships in the church and the mission that God has given us in his church to start off the the new year that way. Life in the Father's House next week at 9.30. And then uh, next week at 11 o'clock. For four weeks, I'll be doing a a series called Our Newcomers Orientation. That's a class for those that are new to our church to tell you more about our church for those four weeks during the 11 o'clock hour. And then on January the 31st, during that 11 o'clock hour, after that four-week class is over, we will convene back in here each week for a series called Get a Life. And Get a Life is about how to order your life around the mission that that God has given us.